Well, it's wonderful to see such an incredible audience. Um, and I thank the organizers, my colleagues in organizing this as well, um, uh, for making it possible to talk about such an exciting new area. Uh, my hope today is to introduce uh, some of the background problems and issues that you'll hear in the second half of the program today, mostly focused on brains. Uh, because although we're interested also in all of the various features uh, that are associated with domestication, one of the things that of course interests us most uh, is you and I and how we behave. And so to some extent, uh, it's really the focus of brains that we're after. Unfortunately, brains are difficult to study, as I'm sure you all know. Uh, and we're beginning, just beginning to understand this. Although there has been uh, a considerable amount of time uh, devoted to this process of understanding uh, domestication and behavior, as you've heard. I want to begin by just sort of trying to broaden your thinking about domestication, because it's going to be necessary as we move along. Uh, domestication, as we've been hearing about it, is mostly about what people have done to animals and plants. And typically that's been the way that we've understood domestication. Today we're beginning to broaden that conception, uh, trying to understand a more broad sense of what may, might be called a domestic phenotype. Uh, and I want to begin by just noticing that all we're talking really about here is uh, something that's about home, about being together, about being in a, quote, non-wild context. And here's just a couple of definitions that are out there. The process whereby a population of living organisms is changed at the genetic level through generations of selective breeding to accentuate traits that ultimately benefit the interests of humans. Uh, clearly, this is domestication as we normally understand it, or the process by which wild plants or animals Animals become adapted to humans in the environment they provide. Again, a little bit more open, but focusing on what we've done to other creatures in the world. Or a species in which the evolutionary process has been modified in a way that makes it more suited to life in an artificial environment rather than in the wild. Uh, in other words, uh, maybe a slightly broader view uh, is to begin to think about uh, what it is for an organism to evolve such a way that it's adapted to either by virtue of action of some other organism or spontaneously itself to an unusual environment, an environment that may in fact uh, be atypical. Uh, and so the final issue is if there's something like incidental domestication and irrespective of human intervention. And it's precisely to this question that a lot of the rest of the presentations will be directed, uh, particularly about whether or not we, in a sense, exhibit features uh, that we see in other species that are domesticated. Um, let me go back to Darwin because this is an old idea. And Darwin in many ways is prescient here. He understood a lot of the things that we've been talking about today so far. Um, he in many ways was fairly open to a lot of variety of ways of thinking about domestication because he thought of domestication as something more than just taming behavior. Uh, that I think is pretty important. Taming is obviously crucial in this story. Um, he, nevertheless, was recognizing that we normally talk about it with respect to human purposes. And that one of the things that you see in these cases is increased variability. We've seen a lot of increased variability in physical traits, in behavioral traits, and so on. Uh, and with dogs, of course, this elaborate difference in body size and body shape that's possible with domestication. Uh, the other variation that's probably equally important, and for our rest of our discussion here, uh, probably of crucial importance, is the change in behavior. That is, it's not just that animals are more tame. For the most part, there's a lot more behavioral 
neuroplasticity we see in domesticated species, uh, that they're more trainable, uh, more adaptive to a variety of contexts, uh, and so on, at least, at, uh, I should say, adaptive to what you might say artificial contexts. Uh, Darwin finally saw one thing that we've focused on today as well, and I'll talk a little bit more about, and that's that in most species, and by the way, this is not universally true, and it may be one of the interesting paradoxes about our own case, is the brain size of domesticated animals is generally smaller uh, compared to their body size, and, and absolutely in many cases, uh, than other nearby relatives. Uh, a number of other researchers over the years have also uh, begun to focus on the question as to whether humans are self-domesticated. It has many different um, ideological linkages as well. Sometimes self-domestication is a good thing in some eyes. It's a bad thing in other eyes. Uh, Darwin says, for example, man in many respects may be compared with those animals which have long been domesticated. We might therefore expect that civilized men, who in one sense are highly domesticated, will be more prolific than wild men. In fact, he was beginning to focus also on reproduction, that domestication is oftentimes about increasing rates of reproduction. Um, we find uh, a number of other uses of it uh, in the last century. I won't go through all of these. Um, but uh, Eugen Fischer, for example, uh, was very much interested in racial characteristics. Um, in fact, there was some influence of his work on the eugenics and later Nazi activity. Um, looking at domestication as something that we might be able to use to divide people up and analyze folks. Um, in terms of, to some extent, who was more domesticated and who was less domesticated. Um, Conrad Lawrence himself was involved in these questions uh, and, in fact, uh, was very much interested in whether or not uh, you should think about domestication as a kind of degradation or just simply a kind of variation. Um, he liked to call it cosmolitanism, um, that is, living in cities, you know, living, um, again, in homes, perhaps. What I want to do today, just to sort of open things up, to broaden your thinking, is to recognize that there are lots of possible consequences. In fact, all of these consequences, I think, are relevant. First of all, um, there can be selective breeding to enhance a desired trait. And we've certainly heard about that in many cases today already. Um, there can also be incidental selection that favors a trait, not just hitchhiking effects, but simply by virtue of moving animals or plants into unusual environments. Um, secondary things happen all the time. Um, there can be selective breeding to eliminate an undesired trait, and certainly with the, uh, the foxes, we've seen very good indication that you can selectively eliminate a trait. Um, there can also, of course, be incidental selection that eliminates traits, uh, in which we don't actually know what's going on. People haven't done it, but it simply occurs. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on the next one. In fact, it's the one I think that is least focused on, but for my... Uh, dollar for dollar is, is one that we need to also pay attention to, not that, it's, that any of these are mutually exclusive, and that's relaxation of selection, bringing animals out of a situation where they are under serious predation pressure in which foraging is a serious problem and competition with others for food and territory is a serious problem. Uh, this relaxes natural selection, not an increase of selection, but actually allowing things to drift and vary. Each of these may be relevant, and I think they're relevant to different aspects. Um, uh, one 
final approach, and I've, I like the list that came out of Jared Diamond's a work of some years ago, in which he said, in order to easily domesticate a species, I'm not sure this is the whole story, but it, they're useful features. Um, they need to be somewhat flexible in their diet. They need to be able to sort of um, eat different things, not to eat the normal stuff uh, that they have for the course of a long period of their evolution. Um, He also felt that maturation rate was an important feature, in part because for human domestication, we want to be able to produce these animals as a resource as quickly and easy as possible. Therefore, there's going to be selection on some reproductive features, not just uh, behavioral features. Um, That includes the ability to breed them in captivity. In captivity, you're in an unusual environment where breeding itself may be a challenge, where animals may avoid interacting with each other sexually uh, in part simply because it's the wrong environment. Uh, uh, Non-aggressivity is an important feature, in part because it makes animals easier to handle. If animals, as we saw with the foxes, um, are constantly aggressive or frightened of people, um, then in effect, uh, it's, it's very hard to have them in association with you. And then finally, the opposite side of this, a high threshold for panic. Um, we saw that the foxes also show this incredible uh, tendency to kind of panic with respect to uh, a threat of some kind. Well, obviously, if you're an animal that also is under predation, uh, you need to be constantly alert. The question I want to ask about all of these is that in each of these, you can see all of these possibilities of selection and relaxation as a possibility. It's what makes the problem of domestication both interesting and complicated, in which one idea will probably not explain the whole story. Um, Let me focus on brains for the rest of the time because, in effect, um, not only is that my interest, uh, but it's also something that many of the subsequent speakers will be talking about. And Darwin's original claim that domestic species have, on average, smaller brains uh, than you find uh, in uh, their wild counterparts has been borne out again and again and again. There are very few exceptions to this. Interestingly enough, um, when we look more closely at the brain, it's not evenly distributed over all the parts. Uh, It's, in fact, quite different in different species, but I'll talk about just a few of the commonalities. Um, One of them is that forebrain seems to be reduced to some extent compared to the rest of the brain. Uh, That includes a variety of structures. Here, um, I just talk about the cortex with respect to the rest of the brain, Uh, but there are many other structures as well. Um, The upper parts of the brain, we call them the dorsal forebrain, uh, seem to be particularly reduced and affected in this process. Uh, This diagram, in fact, uh, shows that the, the dotted line is what you would expect Uh, if, uh, in fact, we were the same uh, in each of these creatures, the lab rat, the wild rat, gerbils, wild domesticated sheep, uh, boars and pigs and so on. Uh, The dotted line is what you'd expect if there wasn't much of a change. The upper line basically says that brain size uh, in these species, in the domestics, uh, cortical size is smaller than you'd expect for the absolute brain size. Uh, That, in effect, there's parts of the brain that are being selectively affected. 
Uh, this is a list. I don't expect you to jump through this. I'm going to just sort of focus on a couple of things and follow it up very quickly. Uh, this is a list uh, by a man who's spent much of his career trying to divide up different parts of the brain and identify which have been reduced, which have been expanded, which have stayed the same uh, during domestication processes. And the numbers you see here, I'm not going to go through any of these in any great detail. Um, it's a negative number in almost all cases, and that's because this is the percent reduction on average, from an animal whose brain size, uh, corrected for brain size, by the way, but percent reduction with respect to what you'd expect in terms of the size of various structures. Uh, I'm going to focus a little bit on the top one and the bottom two, olfactory structures, smell structures, uh, the olfactory bulbs, for example, that we use for smell. Um, and you can see that 25%, 31%, 22%, 33% reduction, really a significant reduction across the board. We find this almost universal. And by the way, uh, as you see, it's also true for domestic dogs. We think of domestic dogs as having great senses of smell, but in fact, they're also subject to significant olfactory reduction, which is quite a surprise. So of these structures, what's interesting about them is that they're often involved in the production of automatic behaviors of various kinds, uh, particularly aggressive behaviors and social and sexual behaviors. Uh, olfaction, for example, smell for mammals, is a crucial uh, part of the process of identifying uh, friends, foes, breeding partners, uh, offspring, and, and parents, and so forth. Um, so to have these structures significantly reduced is an interesting problem. Uh, most people now believe that, in fact, that reduction has to do with the fact that during domestication, um, what we human beings, domesticating animals, so to speak, don't want is we don't want the animals to make these decisions themselves. Uh, to get in the way of our own decisions. And so, in fact, selectively selecting against the capacity to do good olfactory discrimination could actually be an advantage for controlling breeding. What that means, effectively, um, is that it will also probably change the way that aggressive behavior is engaged in simply by virtue of decreasing the capacity to distinguish friends and foes, um, uh, Females that are in heat or not in heat, so on and so forth. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but in effect, you might say the automatic effects are going to be reduced. Uh, and in fact, what we expect to find under those circumstances uh, is that these are going to be animals easier to control and manipulate uh, domestic domesticatively. Um, the point I want to make about this, however, and this is why selection can be quite rapid, not the kind of thing we see in evolution over millions of years, for example. Uh, why? Because to damage a structure doesn't necessarily take a lot of effort, so to speak. And I don't mean actively damaging it. I simply mean selecting for animals that do a poorer job of discriminating this way in one way or another. That can happen automatically. And as a result, mutations can accumulate spontaneously. Um, so one, in selecting against something, uh, actively or passively, uh, it allows errors to accumulate more rapidly. You don't have to necessarily select um, for something to be eliminated as simply uh, to not select against uh, their elimination because noise will step in anyway. Interestingly enough, um, it's not just the olfactory structures, as I mentioned, that are reduced. Uh, this is a summary of just one study of many, many, um, looking at different cortical areas. Uh, the percentages here on the right are, again, reduction with respect to uh, the wild variant. 
And you can see that in the front part of the brain, the red and orange areas, motor areas, are reduced. In fact, they're most reduced in the domestic mink. Um, uh, on the other hand, visual areas are slightly reduced. Uh, we find this varies a lot across species, whether it's the visual system that's been degraded or the motor system that's been degraded. Probably the most significant and drastic one associated with you and I um, is olfaction. Um, we now know that human beings um, have the most reduced of land mammals, the most reduced olfactory genes. Um, by olfactory genes, it turns out that smell is a very complex process genetically. It takes, on average, for typical mammals, somewhere in the range of 1,500 distinct genes for olfactory receptors. Not that they don't just necessarily re sense a particular odor. Their combinatorial activity is what probably does that. But nevertheless, as you decrease the variety of olfactory genes, um, obviously the selectivity of smell goes way, way down. Uh, and you'll see from this figure here uh, that, in fact, uh, humans uh, have a significant reduction. We've lost about half of them. They've become pseudogenes. In fact, this includes all of the genes that are involved in what's been called the accessory olfactory tract, uh, which is a tract that's critical for, um, for smelling, so to speak, pheromones. Uh, this is not something that only we've been involved in. You can see that old world monkeys and apes have also had some reduction. Finally, what I want to jump to here is the fact that damage can occur in lots of ways. And variety can occur in lots of ways. And one of the recent studies that's come out just very recently about a species that has been actively selected by human beings is looking at rabbits. Rabbits, of course, raised for a whole variety of reasons, including food, but also just cuteness or interesting shape and so on. It turns out that rabbit domestication has been associated with a wide variety of gene changes um, that's quite varied across the entire range. Lots of pseudogenicity, lots of other changes. Interestingly enough, something that's characteristic of rabbits and ourselves um, uh, is that a lot of the changes, particularly the changes that you might say are damaging or our loss of function effects uh, involve genes that actually regulate other genes. And regulating processes may in fact change developments in a variety of ways, including development uh, of the brain. Let me just end by jumping way back to the precursors of HOMO, uh, the Australopithecines. Um, there's many ways in which they have a lot of traits that we would expect to have been domesticated away. Um, uh, males uh, had massive faces, highly prognathic faces. Uh, they had brains about the size of, t of today's apes. Um, although they had reduced canines, it was probably for dietary issues, they had remarkably high sexual dimorphism in which males were very large compared to females, suggesting that social behavior uh, in the Australopithecines was very much a polygynous behavior in which males were physically competing for females. That disappears almost to modern levels within um, uh, just about a half million years from the discovery of stone tools. Uh, one of the possibilities is that the very process of domestication has gone on multiple times in multiple ways. And probably the beginning of it has to do with changing our ecology so that we were now able to survive on a very different food source uh, that changed our social behavior in a whole variety of ways. 
including brains that have enlarged, faces that have reduced, um, and sexual dimorphism that has also reduced. That has continued on into the present. There have probably been many waves using many different mechanisms to accomplish this end. Thanks.